sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. To get your initial sales motion working, you've really got to do sales that doesn't scale before you do sales that scales. And what I mean by that is, you know, really researching exactly what your perceived customers are doing right now and signing up to alerts and looking for all of the different intent-based signals that you might be able to get. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Dan Morris. Dan's the managing partner of MindRacer Consulting. Now, we've had some guests on the show recently to talk about the value and benefits of outsourcing your entire sales effort. Well, in my conversation today with Dan, one of the key topics we dive into is the topic of outsourcing sales leadership. Now, the starting point of our discussion is one that perhaps is a bit counterintuitive, but makes complete sense when you look at the state of selling today, which is that sales is often not a core competency of the business, of the organization itself. Culture's poor, management's poorly enabled, and performance is subpar across the board. So we dig into that. Then we also talk about the selling process, including why studies have found that a very high percentage of buyers, some report as high as 97% of buyers, don't trust sellers. And what that figure means in terms of the way you sell and the processes you define to create a better buying experience that enables your buyers to make decisions with a smaller investment of their time, attention, and resources. So we're getting into that and all and much, much more on this show. But before we get to Dan, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it. If you could also leave us a review and give us your feedback about how we're doing. We'd really appreciate it. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, Andy. Great to be here. Great to meet you in person. Well, yeah, sort of in person, right? <laughs> as in person as it gets most of the time today. <laughs> yeah, given that we, at least part of the time, you and I live within a couple miles of each other. So, very true. Yeah, when we're both in Manhattan at the same time. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to make sure. Now that we've met here Quasi face to face. Next time we're both in Manhattan, we'll uh, make sure we get together. Outside, lots of good venues still available. So uh, let's let's yeah, go. That's right. How they're doing afterwards? <laughs> that's right. Well, lots of good venues outside. So, um, so tell us a little bit about you and what what you do. Sure. Uh, so I run a fractional sales leadership firm. So we have about eighteen. We have eighteen vice presidents of sales who help businesses to solve sales problems 
normally it's sales teams that are quite small. CEOs hired a couple of salespeople, run out of time, can't give it the time and energy that they need. Or in some cases, <laughs> that sounds, sounds like an excuse, doesn't it? Well, in some cases, it's because they don't have the the sales mind and that they're yes. not they're really geared into it. In other cases, it's because they do have a sales mind and they know that helping salespeople can really accelerate revenue and help them. Uh, and in other cases, they've tried hiring sales leadership and it hasn't worked out. Uh, and they don't yes. know why. Uh, and so, you know, it all sort of falls around enablement. Are we enabling the CEO? Are we enabling the sales leader who's been promoted but never had any training to how to be a leader? Or are we enabling the, the AE? Well, the answer is yes. And, you know, I got here because... <laughs> I've made a load of the, those mistakes myself. Right. I was a, a sales guy, then a VP, then a CEO, then a consultant. And I, I've been put myself through the ringer enough times to know what can go wrong. Uh, and so we're dedicated to helping a thousand businesses solve that problem by the end of 2025. So it's a, nice. it's a good, good thing to be working on. Yeah, I mean, I've, having done a lot of fractional VP work myself in the past, it's, it's, I was laughing when you said, Tony, are you enabling the CEO? Which in sort of the negative sense, you oftentimes are, yeah. because certainly in smaller businesses, yeah, my experience has been is that that the that the uh, the bulk of the CEOs that I worked with in sort of small, let's say, sub fifty million dollar companies, mm-hmm. yeah, didn't want to sell. Other some that did had no problem, but by and large, most of them did. So as yeah, I started laughing because it really were. I felt like times enabling them to run away from what they really needed to do is to get out and understand how their product was being sold so that they could create a culture and create a, an operation that uh, was more realistic. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because if they want to stay small, then they have to uh, keep avoiding that problem and just take what comes to them, right? They just take orders from their network, they deliver work well, and it's fine, they want to stay small. But if they actually want to grow, and they actually want to get help, then there weren't that many options for them in terms of how we could really surround them with a support team. So we just thought, you know, and and I've built very fast-growing teams all of my career as a W2 or as part of a Mm -hmm. family team. Mm -hmm. I mean, I built sales teams up to 47 people. I then spun another company out of that and hired 60 people in 18 months. And, you know, all of those sorts of things, uh, early stage scale, you have to just get it right. And you can you have different problems when you've got product market fit and you're selling a lot because you can have people's careers grow absolutely fast as, as anything. But in smaller businesses where they're just trying to staff up their expert team of you know they're trying to provide enough fuel for their expert team of delivery people like software software building companies or whatever different problem right so mm-hmm. did you ever work with the the expert ceo who were, was tripping over themselves because they were such an expert that they couldn't have a repeatable sales process <laughs> well you got lots of different profiles but yes that's that's uh, that's one of them yeah, so that, that happens a lot. And then there are others who have built a brilliant product and they've got some initial traction, but then they just don't, they eventually realize that they don't know how to build a sales team yeah. and how to actually support the sales team and how to plan the career trajectory for those people. So right. we're, we're just in there solving those problems all the time for those types of people. 
And it's we really enjoy it because we've been in there and done it many times before. <laughs> um, it's still hard work, but it's very interesting as a problem to solve. Well, let me ask a question because I had a guest on the show recently who um, Jaron Vosberg, who's VP of Jump Crew, that that does sales outsourcing, you know, B two B sales well. outsourcing. Yeah, and. Yeah, it seems like so. So raises a question. I'm I'm very intrigued by that. I think that's sort of the future of sales. Actually, is more and more companies seeing that whether this comes from CEO or whatever. It's like, hey, we just really want to focus on the things that we do really well, our core competencies. And is is it really necessary for sales to be one of those things we're really good at, or can we find that resource outside the company? are we going that way with with sales leadership as well? Is that it could just be sort of permanently outsourced? Well, let me answer it with my own experience. You know, when I was building a sales team, I started off with a couple of sales reps, and then I had six, and then I had nine, and then I had a sales director who worked for me, and then I had more and more people, and then a lead gen team, and all sorts. And I, I was able to run forty seven people with a couple of directors working for mm. me, making it work, running the sales ops and uh, understanding the marketing strategy and informing marketing. I, I mean, I could do that. No problem at all. So we're running across various different verticals with different products in one business. So why can't I do that with multiple businesses? Well, I can. I mean, I've done it with many more than that since. And, you know, as an individual, I run multiple businesses, sales teams at the same time because it was exactly what I was used to doing as a sales leader in a high growth business, right? Activity all the time, using technology wherever possible to help the reps get better and providing that time and experience to the reps to help them overcome the problem. So yeah, absolutely. If you're a sales leader who's been using those sorts of technologies in your W2 career, then you can be an effective sales leader in multiple businesses as a fractional sales leader. So you know, it's interesting because that's another group that we're actually enabling at this point is right. the, the consultant, right? Because well, many consultants are great at doing consulting work, but maybe not great at packaging their services and being able to actually uh, go and do projects. Right. But I, well, I sort of asking a different question, though, which is, is, and I appreciate what you said about fractional VPs because, yeah, when I was doing that work, I'd, I would have two or three clients at a time. Uh, hmm. But I was talking more about this idea of outsourcing sales and sales leadership. And, um, yeah, I mean, you may be there full-time as a sales leader instead of time-sharing yourself among various companies. But you're there for a specific time and purpose. Mm-hmm. And and I bring this up because... I think everybody's sort of aware. We hear the statistics about uh, the short tenure, increasingly short tenure of VPs of sales and CROs yeah, these yeah. days. Yeah, you know, fourteen months, eighteen months. You know, a couple stats that are out there, and it seems to speak to a problem, <laughs> which I'm not sure exactly what what uh, you know. There's various aspects of the problem. So, you know, it's but that causes this short tenure. And I think, you know, obviously one is, is just poor hiring practices on the part of, of companies in terms of understanding what they need at any point in time. So perhaps a model more like yours, except more on a full-time basis for a limited period of time is the right way, which is 
look, you know, we hire people for specific roles as opposed to saying a career, right? So, hey, I'm a small company. I'm a small company. I'm 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 growing quickly, but I'm in the I'm in the zero to fifteen million dollar stage. Yeah. That's a specific type person, Definitely. as opposed to someone that's the fifteen to fifty or fifteen to a hundred yeah. uh, type stage. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So is the question more along the lines of, is this the future of selling? And I think that flexibility and access to resources that you need to get your business to whatever your next level is at the stage that you're at is absolutely what people want. It's what business needs to access talent when they need it for the right stage of business and only for that right stage of business. And, you know, I listened to the Jump Crew episode. I think they've got a brilliant business model. I think it works really, really well. We have partners also who outsource and run complete sales teams if that's what our client wants. Mm-hmm. We, can, we have advised and will continue to advise them on how to do that, how to set it up, how to get the best from it. Right. And then in, make an introduction, right? But there are sure. also leaders in businesses who want to make sure that they're building internally and building a team and running the culture and owning that whole experience of building the company, but they just need some help. And so, you know, depending what side of the fence they, their mindset is, where they need to go is one factor. And also the biggest factor is what does the business need right now? Like what is the way of this business as an independent entity getting where it needs to be because we need to get X, Y, Z experience. And I'll give you another example. Mm-hmm. Most of the VPs that I've interviewed over the last few years, and we're talking many, many, many VPs, mm-hmm. they don't really, they, they, get, they get sales ops, but they don't really enjoy doing it. You know, like being involved in really mapping out all of the things that go into Salesforce workflows or mapping out HubSpot's workflows or integrating systems. They'll get it, but they're probably not getting out of bed excited about doing it. So Mm -hmm. if we've got a sales ops team, which we do, who get out of bed excited about doing that, they're brilliant at it, they've done all the research, and they partner with a VP to get it done quickly and effectively, guess what? Everybody gets the result that they need. So, So we're not only living in that space that you're describing there by using what we need at the time that we need it, but also helping the client get what they need at the time that they need it. And I think that's absolutely the way of, especially these businesses that we mostly work with that are in that 500K to 20 million sort of stage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They can't yet afford a full-time sales ops person. They haven't really, they can't think about the time it takes to properly evaluate what technology stack that they need. Uh, you know, they don't really understand exactly how to do the headcount plan to get them the resources they need right now and then prepare for what they need next. And so, yeah, I mean, there's there's a huge amount of value for businesses who do want to have that flexible approach to making their decision. And then, hey, if it's more appropriate to work with a completely outsourced sales team because they want to run for it, they're doing a land grab or they've found product market fit and they want to accelerate hard, brilliant well, I think it could be more basic than that, though. I mean, and I think that, that you know, I see the future where, again, it's not just sort of a, you know, purely in the moment sort of needs-based thing, but it's it's just, it's what you do is outsource sales, is, you know, look in so many companies, is, you know, sales is considered sort of the necessary evil, right? Um the culture around sales is poor. I mean, just go on, spend any time on LinkedIn and, and listen to 
sellers and even you know lower level sales managers talk about the struggles they have with uh, yeah managers never you know, mm-hmm. companies do such a bad job investing in enabling managers right uh, yeah. especially frontline managers which is a you know critical source of of we'll call it failure if you will and and companies by and large are saying well the way we're doing it's sort of good enough and it's like well hey if you take a different approach to it and say, yeah, we're going to bring in this resource and they're taking on this responsibility because they're a professional sales organization. So their culture that they've built within their team, the training and the enablement they do, you know, they bring in the tech stack that they use. It's like, well, it starts making a lot of sense. Yeah. And I would think it'd be a relief for a lot of senior leadership in, in many companies to say, yeah, this is just another thing like cloud services and HR and payroll and so on that we outsource to the professionals. I think it's definitely moving that way, has already moved that way in many places and many cases. Uh, and if it's not, then the trigger is when they try and do it themselves and they spend a lot of money getting it wrong and they cost themselves a lot of opportunity getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. And then they raise their hand and they say, hey, actually, we didn't realize how much goes into this. Can you give us a hand? And, you know, one example, we, we work with a SaaS company over the last 18 months. I've just rolled off the project. And uh, they, they've been around for years, and they were at 250K ARR. They just couldn't decide which market to chase, so they were trying to chase them all. And, mm. you know, we were quickly able to help them focus on what was going to make sense for them. And since yep. then, we've 7X their ARR. So, you know, just getting them to that stage, and if we do a really good job, we get fired. Right, we replace ourselves with yeah. somebody who is able to run that team now, and that's exactly what happened. And now we've got somebody able to run the team internally, wasn't ready before, and now they are, and and we're off the project, and they're happy, and so are we. And that that's the sort of thing to get to the next stage. Brilliant, you know. And they can now go and decide whether they want to keep going internally, we're an advisor, or whether they want to start scaling up with somebody who's got this whole team ready to go. Yeah. And they know what their target market is better than ever. So they can now size that and go to their investors and say, hey, here's our TAM. We now know who our TAM is. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I think that's one of the, the benefits we're talking about with this type of, of service. I always remember the story. It was, I think it was an article on Harvard Business Review years ago on a special episode, or episode, special issue they did on sales. But it was talking about how do you know who to hire, right, for the right point in time, for the right yeah. job, which is so hard. And, yeah, they tell a sort of tale about, uh, you know, a landscape architect being hired by a university to design a, a green space, right, a big open space. And, and you know, landscape architect comes in, does their work, you know, tractors, bulldozers, move dirt around, yada, 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 and then year later there's this big reveal and when they do the reveal you know the university administrators say well you know where are the sidewalks and they said well you know we're gonna let people walk on this for a year and find out where they go and then put the sidewalks there and you know i think it sort of relates to this whole idea with with sales managers is you sort of got to go out and get some experience and find out where you need where the people are going right where the buyers want to go and then hire the people that can help you optimize that right. and take it to the next level. Especially in that early stage, once you realize who those people are, then quite often there's a bigger channel opportunity as well because you can go and work with people who've got the similar client. And that's one of the things that we always look for is, hey, 
if you want to stay lean and have you know your sales team as productive as possible at what stage can you possibly bring in more marketing focus on the channel uh, and mm-hmm. start getting that co-marketing budget together and start having a higher conversion rate from those co-marketing opportunities you know everybody needs a bit of that today because going out and getting leads is expensive <laughs> and mm-hmm. doing it with a partner is expensive but slightly less so and your conversions higher and if you're a founder and you're just starting out and you don't think that way already you waste a whole lot of money going out and banging on doors that aren't ready to hear from you yet for example yeah um, yeah anyway, it's, it's it's a never-ending problem and i was just actually thinking about this earlier today in terms of you know to get your initial sales motion working, you've really got to do sales that doesn't scale before you do sales that scales. And like one of the, and what I mean by that is, you know, really researching exactly what your perceived customers are doing right now and signing up to alerts and looking for all of the different intent based signals that you might Mm -hmm. be able to get participating, you know, the professional groups, the Slack channels, the meetups, the whatever, meetups digitally or not. I was actually in a meetup in augmented reality yesterday, which was pretty cool. Um, and then the marketing mindset, right? Like playing that long game to make sure that they've got answers for questions when people are going through problems to try and find those early clients. That takes a lot of time. And mm-hmm. to bring in somebody who can run that process early is a, is a good thing but then to identify what you do really well more frequently is the way of building it to prepare to scale right you've identified right. your repeatable process um and you know helping people through that is a case of unpacking the knowledge of the founder and you, you talk about enablement right like unpacking the knowledge of the founder is such a tough thing to do and i'll, I'll throw a tip out there for anybody who hasn't solved this yet like if you've got a content writer or you're working with somebody who writes blogs and stuff like that, have them interview the founder about how they won and how they how they talk to the first few customers, not necessarily how they prospected for them because they probably got introduced, sure. but really interview. T- same 10 or 12 questions from the founder to work out how you can train your first salesperson. And then if your first salesperson has been successful but they can't share that data because it's all in their head and they don't want to write it down, interview them. And that will help you to get that information out for your next sales hire and hopefully into an enablement platform where they can look for right. it. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's building blocks, right? Like how can you make that easy? And so whether you're building outside of your business and you want somebody else to own all of that or whether you're building inside of your business and you need some help doing it, they're still the building blocks you'd have to go through. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I want to come back to one of those points you know, you're talking about repeatable sales process, and something I know that you talk about and write about, uh, and so on. Is yeah, the, the term is used so frequently, but I I don't think people really understand what it means, right? Because yeah, I've done a lot of research into sales processes. I just did a bunch of part of a new book I'm publishing, and 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 at least in the tech space. You know, when you look at definition of what a sales process is, you know, it's fundamentally unchanged for the last n number of decades. You know, at least fifty years, if not if not longer. I mean, sure, there's automation and and but the fundamental definitions of the process are sort of the same. You know, initial contact, qualification, discovery, demo, propose, close, all serve 
variations on IBM's legendary five call close that is probably a hundred years old at this point. <laughs> um, so you know, when people talk about repeatable sales process, really, what are they talking about? Because there's sort of this inherent logic with those steps that IBM has had IBM laid out in the early days of selling computers. Uh, you know, contact, qualification, discovery, demo, proposed close. I mean, it's like, what else is there? It's all of the detail around each of those stages that really makes the difference, right? So you can buy a CRM off the shelf and it's probably got those stages built into it. But just buying a piece of software doesn't solve the problem, does it? You know, you start using it and you put your cards on there after you've had a call. But if you don't have an actual entry criteria for each one of those stages and an exit criteria for what you have to be able to agree before you move to the next one, then you just end up with a to-do list. And, you know, we often see businesses with a huge amount of cards on their Kanban board. And it doesn't matter whether they're using, you know, a project management software as their CRM or a HubSpot or a Salesforce or whatever. If they're using it badly, which is just basically putting a list of calls that they've had with people who said they might be interested one day, then that doesn't really get them as far as Mm. they would go, right? So the repeatability of it is to make sure that any one person could follow and do the same thing and then to be able to get to a sensible discussion at the sales meeting each week. Why is it in that stage? And so, you know, another good example, right? So we went into a business recently and they had gone through a couple of years of of building their data, bad CRM before, and that they'd moved to HubSpot because they wanted to make a change, but they hadn't reviewed the actual stages. And so we sat down, interviewed the sales team and understood the process that they were following mentally Mm -hmm. and actually just wrote that down and said to them, okay, well, what is the entry and exit criteria that you're using for each of these? And they're like, we're not really, we don't really know. We just sort of put it here if we think it's 50%. And so we helped them to define that. And it only, you know, you've been through this a lot of times. It's a straightforward exercise, but if you've never done it, you don't think of it. And so that straight away, within a couple of weeks, they started having better conversations within the sales meeting. And then several months later, they've got really much better data to begin to drive some insights for their business. So repeatable means consistent. It means being able to decide when something should be in stage one, stage two, stage three, whatever you call them. And it means agreeing like what is actually a sales opportunity and what is not a sales opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you have just an, an open entryway for somebody who said, oh, that sounds like a good idea, when you talk to them on the phone, then your sales forecasting is going to be very low quality. And your know, close rate is going to be very low. And what is low compared to a benchmark, right? So that's when we talk about a repeatable sales process, it's establishing those sorts of benchmarks. It's establishing the entry and exit criteria and then enabling a feedback loop that says, hey, Last month, here's what it looked like. Let's shoot for this this month and just steadily getting that better. And one of the big things that feeds that is looking back at the data from the customers you made most money from before. And why? Right? Like, why did they stick around? They were obviously getting value. But do we know why? Have we talked to them? Build a persona? Start to understand better the stories of the people who actually bought from us before and why they're still mm-hmm. around. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what we're talking about when we talk about repeatable, because that's something that you can train a salesperson on the framework and they can build confidence quickly with telling those same stories regularly. 
and they can recognize when something's not a great fit and why, which then means that your business is able to start harnessing those metrics and starting to see some level of how much can we invest in marketing, right? So I think that's beyond the stages one through five. That begins to be the next layer of information that makes it useful. And, you know, a lot of owners, founders, CEOs don't think through that very much when they buy a CRM. They just get told, hey, we want this CRM. Uh, Or they throw a lot of money at marketing to see what sticks, which is cool. Um, Anyway, I could talk for a long time about all of this. No, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that... Unfortunately, in the hands of of too many leaders, though the process itself becomes this this very rigid thing, and and the problem with rigidity in sales is that no two buyers are ever alike. And I don't agree with that. Excuse me. I don't agree that no two buyers are ever alike. Well, I think fundamentally they're not. You're two different, unique human beings. I mean, they may have something similar in terms of their requirements, but from my own experience is that, yeah, I mean, I I have a process that's somewhat repeatable, but every time I talk to a unique human being, their perspective on the world and what they're trying to get out of and the way I interact with them and the way they process information and go through it, it's never going to be precisely the same. Well, they're not identical, but they are alike. Well, but they're not alike. They're unique. Right, I mean, so yes, there's some similarities, but they are unique, and it's this this idea that that there is no uniqueness, especially what we see in oftentimes in sales today, is I think what's served sort of the one of the big causes of poor results is that there's not there's a sense that yeah everybody is the same that we are able to be completely consistent every call should go this way or every customer will ask answer the questions the same way, and and they don't. So right. I think when you talk about it, it's a framework, sure. But too often these days, I see it's not applied as a framework. It's applied as a follow the instructions step by step by step. And when you have people that don't react and interact with you in the way that you're predicting, then things get thrown off. I think that's a real good point, And it's a training problem. And if there is not the training that enables the reps to be aware of what to listen to and and some possible information that they can make a decision about using, then there's a big opportunity to help them get better. And that's why it's important to listen to calls and see, hey, that's Mm -hmm. interesting. You listen to it this way. You answered that question that way. Uh, Walk me through your thought process there. What was it you were thinking when you used that example? And was there anything else that you thought about saying but you didn't say? They're the sorts of things that call coaching enables very easily, right? And, you know, if you're a VP that really wants to get great results from your team, they're the sorts of things that can really help them build their confidence. Uh, yeah. Hey, I can listen to it. I, I could do all the sales calls in the world, and I'm very curious, and I happen to be very uh, – when I'm curious about something, I'm going to Tony Stark it overnight. I'm going to read all the information. I'm going to work out what's what. I'm going to see the two perspectives that I might put forward in my call. Not right. all sales reps work like that. And so no. at VP, I was always the person who was like, okay, well, what's going on in this deal? Don't tell me a story about it. Tell me what's actually happening. And as a call recording became a, a much more prevalent thing, and now we, we mandate it in the, our engagement because it's so powerful to help. Um, we can listen to the calls, and we can have those conversations, and we can grade calls very easily mm-hmm. and start having objective sure. data, right? 
And so, you know, yeah. if you can help your reps by saying, walk me through your thought process with this, that doesn't scale easily, but wow, it delivers a lot of value. And in their confidence is where it delivers the value because they feel okay about saying, hey, have you thought about this? Or let me tell you a different story, you know? Um, they're the things that just need to be done with the team to build its confidence in those support stages with as you build your team out, right? Oh, absolutely. That's, yeah. As people know, as yeah, our owner of this podcast, Bring DNA, that's one of their specialties is conversational intelligence um, and helping coaches and sellers, yeah, improve by listening to what actually is happening. Right. So it's that, it's that listening to understand rather than listening to respond peace. Yes. And, you know, that is a massive, massive problem. Totally agree. And I'm always very curious when somebody's trying to sell to us, whether they actually listen to what we say when we share information in the discovery. <laughs> and we all know that they, most of the time, don't listen very well, right? And so it just can continuously creates this opportunity to say, how can well, we help people who want to be successful be more right. successful? Yeah, so let's let's talk about that though. The, the listening to to respond versus listening to understand, absolutely, it's a huge issue. But I think part of that is driven by this idea of look, we are identifying these exit criteria for our discovery stage, mm -hmm. and so and I've got these questions that we normally ask, and so I'm just listening for these things, right? I'm not really listening to understand. I'm really listening to say. Can I tick the boxes at the end of our discovery, you know, to meet the exit criteria for the stage? And it becomes pro forma rather than really, hey, do I really understand? What's the most important thing to this buyer and how can I help them get that, right? Because, yeah, I've got these, these uh, criteria i got to meet. I've got these pressures. And I think oftentimes that gets sacrificed. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um one of the things that we've always found most powerful is really asking the questions that help understand what the criteria for satisfaction actually are going to be. You know, if, if you were going to do this project with a business, like what would you be looking for six months to a year from now that told you you made a good decision? Listen, mm -hmm. right? And, and keep listening until they, and then ask follow-up questions to see, well, what, what do you mean by that? What does that mean in your organization? Right. You know? Those sorts Tell me more about that. Right. Yeah. Those sorts of questions will get you to your discovery answers anyway, but you'll do it in a much more curious way and you'll do it in a much more engaging way and you'll stand mm -hmm. out 95 plus, plus percent of reps that are out there. And, and that enables you to kick off your next interaction with them with, hey, Andy, last time we spoke, we agreed that you were looking for X, Y, Z. Has anything else been added to that list since last time we spoke? Right, because right. a lot of buyers forget exactly what they said last time, and so you know. Anyway, there, there's a lot there that is not just checking boxes. It's just developing curiosity and confidence within the sales team that lets them feel good about asking those sorts of questions, and it's more fun. Exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah, and this gets back to a point we touched on in the earlier conversation. We talking about uh, sales professional, you know, professional sales organizations. Let's say that that. Since, it's a, since that's their business, they train people how to do this, right? And they create a culture to do it, which I think is missing in so many companies. Mm -hmm. Is, you know, hey, we're not going to really invest a lot in training of our frontline managers. 
And that's a problem, right? Because it's this is this is where sellers learn how to sell. I mean, yeah. you can say it's a training, but it's really the manager and it's their peers and so on. Is so, yeah. It, well, I want before I, before I get too distracted, I want to ask you another question though. That's sort of tied to what you were just talking about is is having those conversations with the buyer, coming back to them. Is to me, this is you know this idea about becoming a trusted advisor for 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 buyers. And you've written uh, that only what three percent of buyers trust sellers. You had had a, written a blog post about that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's sort of a stark figure, right? Three yeah, percent. So, yeah. So, why don't buyers trust sellers? I mean, everybody has their answer for that. So, it's I know it's a fairly open question. But in your mind, I mean, what what is the primary reason why? Why don't buyers trust sellers? Well, there's a lot of depth of, of uh, perception there. We'll give you we'll give you a ten seconds to answer that. <laughs> ten seconds to answer that one. Okay. Well, often it's because they go too soon for where's the money, and instead mm-hmm. of trying to really understand whether this is going to be a fit for them in the medium and long term, they're always just pushing to try and get a deal closed. And there's a big nuance when it comes to a consultative sell for an enterprise product or something that requires a lot of rollout versus a transactional sell. So let's talk about sure. B2B consultative sell here. And yes, you know, that's what I'm referring to. The trust comes to whether they really believe they're getting quality answers from the salesperson. If the salesperson just answers really quickly and gives them an off-the-top-of-the-head answer rather than saying, let me bring in and a consultant, let me bring in our solutions manager, our solutions team to work through this. They just get there too quickly, and and they don't trust the result that they're going to get from that salesperson. So they don't pursue the opportunity. You know, mm-hmm. like commission breath. I think is the best way of <laughs> is, is right. summarizing it. Like they're going for the close way too soon without bothering to invest, and that sticks with people. And that sort of friction is not future proof. No, it's the opposite of future proof, right? Um, yeah, because I think the the if you're saying that that figure statistic is right, but let's assume it's even off by a factor of five or or ten. I mean, it's still a vast minority of sellers are trusted by buyers. Is what it says though is that buyers make the choice and decision about what to buy. In spite of the salesperson, not because of the salesperson, and I see this as as sort of the the bridge for sellers to cross is to become the reason why the buyer buys, as opposed to the buyer just buying despite them. And you sort of yeah lay it out in in something you just talked about here, and and something you've written about in terms of you know professional salespeople you know, take nothing for granted, they assume nothing, uh, make sure that they really understand, ask the questions, make sure they really understand, and make sure the buyer feels understood, which I think is is oftentimes overlooked. There's another part to this, and that is that the salesperson feels supported within their organization, where if they say no to something because it's not going to be a good fit, then that's going to mm-hmm. work well, you know, rather than them feeling that they're going to be you know, reprimanded for not trying to push that lead or 
you know, they're, they're going to have to explain to somebody why the deal didn't go forward, whatever. Like, right. if, if you've got a really solid set of criteria that you need for a good client within the business and the, and the rep feels confident in doing that, they don't spend their time trying to, you know, put a square peg into a round hole as much. Mm-hmm. And if, if quotas are, you know, they're always aggressive, right? Quotas are always aggressive, but if some people in the team are attaining them and they're actually being able to say no to some stuff and actually work on stuff that's got a longer burn, then that's a great example to the reps who are not there yet and want to be. And there's, there's a cultural element to that within the team that, you know, if your team is able to be a consultant and say, it doesn't sound like it's a good time for us to work together, but here's what people have done before they worked with us. Give you an example. I worked with a SaaS company recently, and they're in the sales enablement space. They do digital presentations, and they realized that before people invested in their sales presentation tool, there were several other pieces of the sales tech stack that they had to have in place first before it made sense for them to invest with them. And so we actually mapped out a timeline of what technologies were in place. Technologies, not even brands of technology, but technologies that were in place before it made sense. And as part of the discovery, it was possible for us to work out where we couldn't see it because of weaponizer or whatever, um, what exactly, whether they were ready, right? And whether we should be talking later. And did they have plans to implement this missing piece first? That is pretty powerful for a salesperson to be able to go, yeah, the most successful people generally have this and that in place first. Doesn't mm-hmm. sound like you have that. So, you know, are you planning to do that in the future? Right, like that is like, whoa, he's not going to just take my money right now? Oh, that's that's amazing. I definitely want to come back to that person in the future. But there's, right. always, there's always pressure to get the deal across the line. Is there anything we can do to win them now and not bill them later? That's a management problem. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's always, and this is one of the fun things about being a fractional VP, is that you get to be able to see and support both mindsets, the C-level and the rep, to be able to help them understand each other's perspective on that and to be able to start mapping how we can do this better, right? So um, it's it's a fascinating challenge, and I and I agree, it is a, an ongoing one. I obviously wrote about it, um, but that's one of the ways in which you can help salespeople mm-hmm. have the confidence to gain trust. Yeah, you had an interesting comment here that sort of triggered a thought too. Is I think one of the great things I found about doing the fractional VP work is that there there's yeah, there's, at some point there's an expiration date. On that, right? I mean, yeah. at some point, you stop becoming part of the solution and start becoming part of the problem. Well, that's where we want to replace ourselves, right? So that's right. You know, for me, I like the scrappy early stage parts of a business, and then when it becomes maintenance management, I get bored. And so, you know, we have other people who love maintenance management, but not the scrappy piece. So we could swap out people, but that's often a stage where you know a consultant may have run their timeline. Mm -hmm. a lot of value and then the business is on to something else you know again it's that timeline piece where you fit with the right person to get you to the next stage so it's it's, that's definitely the world we live in yeah hire for an assignment not for a career yep absolutely Mm. all right well dan well thank you very much for joining us Great conversation, Andy. Well, we knew this was going to be a good one based upon some of the stuff that I've listened to, but enjoyed this very much. <laughs> well, thank you for listening. Um, so if people want to connect with you and learn more about you, how should they do that? Yeah, sure. So um, our website is mindracerconsulting.com. 
Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's just LinkedIn, Dan Morris Profile. They're the two best sources. Uh, and if you go to mindracer.com, mindracerconsulting.com slash Andy, there's a download available for you there. If you're having challenges uh-huh. onboarding your first salesperson and you want a Perfect. resource, there you go. You can have that. Glad to be associated with that. All right. Dan, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Andy. Enjoy the rest of your day. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Dan Morris, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you very much for that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.